This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, I'm Philip C and welcome to The Breakfast Grill. Now on today's Breakfast Grills, there's no other conversation like GE15. And with me today in the studio is Dr. Trisha Yeo, CEO of Ideas. And in the field, Professor Dr. Shamsul Amri Baharuddin, Director of Institute of Ethnic Studies, as we unpack the recent, this upcoming election, which is going to be a nail-biter. Very good morning, both of you, Trisha and Shamsul. How are you both keeping? Good morning, Philip. I think we're all excited. Good morning, Prof. Prof, are you very morning, excited? Yeah. <laughs> morning. Very good. Let's start off with the questions. Now, when this election is done and dusted, you know, what do you think was the major vote consideration here? Was it the prime minister candidate? Was it the party platform? Or the parliamentary candidate? You know, Trisha, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I was looking at the Merdeka Centre polls from like about a month or two ago. And at that time, before nomination day, uh, the factors that voters cited most often were actually leadership of the party. Mm. So this was consistent across the board, whether you're talking about well, more consistent among the young voters as well as uh, Malay voters. But it was clear that leadership was something that outshined any other factor, including party, um, including candidate, including issues. Uh, but then you fast forward it to the most recent survey that just came out. I yeah. think this just you know came out last, uh, last week. Uh, this is after nomination day. This ha- there's been a lot more scrutiny over the candidates, who they are, um, and, and that has shifted. So yeah. the trends actually have shifted to more interest um, in the candidates over the leadership, over the party. But with the exception of among the young, I think the percentage was, it dropped from about 30 to 40% all the way down to 20, 20 over percent, where the, the young people still think that leadership is important, outweighing the other factors, but the number has dropped. Um, so evidently, it's actually pretty split at the moment. Um, Malays still look at leadership and, and party mm. over... Uh, over candidate ultimately, yeah. yeah. So I think it differs from you know different ethnographic. It differs, right? And I think Prof, especially now in the situation where we have about one in three who were undecided, whether this com- whether this consideration as we have more clarity over the candidates as the party launches their manifestos, right? Do you see that the party platform and the candidates on the ground really becoming a very important consideration nationally or very much at a targeted level? Prof? Well, I think what we are looking at, uh, uh, I only uh, use or trust half of the poll, you know, because uh, <laughs> I spend a lot of time on the ground, so a poll is fantastic to give us a guide. But what, what, what we need to complement is what do actually people do on the ground? For example, uh, there is this association called uh, Persatuan Anak Kelantan Perantau, you know, it's sort of Kelantanese were outside Kelantan, mm. and they have been meeting at every state level, uh, providing uh, offers such as uh, ticket, air, uh, air ticket, and bus ticket to go back to vote. So it's a it's a, it's a different ethnography as as we can see yeah. uh, how this will impact people. I mean, of course, this is a small case of Kelantanese, but there are two hundred fifty thousand Kelantanese in Klang Valley. So uh, for me. Uh, I mean, you distribute in the whole of Kelantan, it could be very, very decisive in a sense, uh, whether you would pass or you don't vote pass. 
See, because the campaign uh, was conducted by a lot of past leaders, you know. So while we want to to listen to some of this fantastic work done by uh, all the pollsters, but I think we have to be very careful looking at uh, some of the localized issues, some of the local attempts uh, to organize. Like, for example, yeah. there are groups of Chinese alumni, uh, school alumni in Johor uh, asking the people uh, working in Singapore to come back. So all this we have to see. We, we, well, we know the posters are very important, but there are at the ethnographic level, we have to complement it with what is happening on the ground and what efforts are being made. So excellent point where we then talk about that, you know, we talk a lot about national issues, but what really what moves the needle is the ground game. How do we energize and mobilize on the bottom upright? And Tricia, you know, the ex- expectation always is that, you know, someone like BN has that machinery, the electoral machinery to mobilize and move people. Do you see that manifest itself in the past 14 days with respect to the campaign? Because honestly, we see Pakatan Harapan mobilize quite a bit. Even Perikatan National with their big ground game activities also kind of amp up the game so much and you get a sense that it's a bit more tighter in terms or, or the gap has narrowed in terms of the ability of the respective three coalitions to have their ground game effective. Yeah, I think this is a really crucial point to, to actually highlight that. I mean, let's kind of reflect a little bit here, zooming out. The reason that we're having a GE is because mm. UMNO and BN agitated for it. Yes. They wanted it. They were confident. They believed that if the dissolution happened immediately, which it did, that they would be the front runners, right? Um, and I think, you know, it's really fascinating to see the last two to three weeks just how things have shifted. I think it's precisely because of the splits within the party, very evident to everyone externally. Um, and this has resulted in the BN campaign being not as coordinated On the as defensive, right? we have seen yeah. uh, in the past, in the previous elections. I mean, even in 2018, when AMNO actually was probably, had taken a worse hit compared to its previous elections. This election, you see leaders saying things um, in disparate manners. Uh, Ismail Sabri himself didn't leave his constituency for five days, and then, then only going to the really key ones like Sungai Bulo and Kuala Selangor. Um, so exactly as you say, mobilising machinery, which has always been BN strength, going from house to house, that has shifted a little bit. In fact, we're seeing now that BN is starting to even do um, large public charamas, which yeah. which was never really its modus operandi. Uh, so you compare this to PH, which you know was the first to launch its manifesto, first to announce its candidates across Peninsular, um, and PN also, which has been spending a lot of ad money, right? Yes. Like on social media. I see a lot on the federal highway. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it's interesting. I mean, yeah. I think anal- analysing the election from a resource angle as well, like which coalition, which party has been able to spend, who has the spending power. I mean, I th- think this is something that I'm going to write about later. Yeah, I find this interesting and I want to build on Trisha's point about BN calling for this election earlier. You know, and Prof, with respect to BN then, because it very much hinges on on BN doing very well, right, to secure Zahid's leadership post-election. Do you agree with that assessment that if BN really comes out short, you know, Zahid's career in Amno is in trouble then? Well, what if BN wins B? How do you explain? So do we have to be ready with that kind yeah. of mental construct? Yeah. See, this is what I'm thinking. Because I find that uh, uh, BN has less, less, less money now compared to before. That I know, because the way the campaign in the kampung is not like before. You know, there's a lot of festivities and whatnot, but nowadays just 
You're lucky to get a can ring, you know. So uh, it's important to see uh, the distribution of the funds within Amno and so on and so forth, which uh, were more systematic before, and a lot more funds. You know? What can what we can see now is that there are three areas we have to be very careful. Uh, I think number one is the urban campaign, urban areas, and then the semi-urban, and then the rural areas. Who are dominant in the campaign in this area. So you cannot take the media alone because media is a general perspective about what happens in the country, uh, it seems. But actually, in the urban area, I think PH has uh, beaten BN and PN in terms of the number of campaigns and and, and meetings they've had, you know, from north to south. And But then when you look at the semi-urban, which is the critical area where... um, I think uh, PH has uh, almost fixed deposit when uh, the Chinese and the Indian voters get together and vote any Malay, especially a PKR Malay, maybe or Amana, will be interesting because the campaign as Mat Sabu and Khalid has been doing in Shah Alam and in Johor uh, are different. They are different. They are they are dealing with specific issue in the area because I. I remember one of the Wakirayat in Ringit Johor, in the Adun, uh, Datu Ayub. It's a very, four, five, four or five terms. Huh? So they're not campaigning in the old style anymore. They are, uh, they are meeting leaders of families, you know. It's very interesting because Amno, especially Chawangan or the, uh, the lowest rung Amno, was made of originally family members groups of families and kinship groups, you know. So they are falling back on that because every Bahagian has at least 10 to 15 family or kinship group if we notify, if we notice them. So it's quite interesting how they go back to all this uh, relationship yeah, uh, which may not be as big and as noisy, but uh, as effective. You know, this is what I'm. And that's thinking. why you know when I think think about the point you made just now, Trisha, that initially about it was about the leadership at the federal level, about yeah. the party level, and how you're seeing it shift away to a bit more decentralized. Right, it's all about the local candidate coming through, and that's becoming very stark, isn't it? And that's why you're seeing more bottom-up campaigning. You don't see this mega charamas taking place. I guess then the question then is. Are you going to see no clear trend in the result? It's all about the quality of the candidate as opposed to the quality of the leadership then. Yeah, this is a really difficult um, one to call because I agree with Prof in the sense that what the candidates have been doing is meeting people in these sort of like kelompok. So they, they're calling yeah. it like yeah. kelompok cerama. Yep. I mean, really small. You're talking about, you know, 30 to 50 people in an apartment, like the low-cost flats. And they're meeting people throughout the day, right? All the way from morning to night. Um, and I think that it's it's fascinating because precisely this is the first time that we are having so many states not going into an election simultaneously with the federal. So one would expect, and I did say this at the start, that it would be a national election. People are looking at a federal, um, you're, you're mainly right. casting your ballot just once, right? So in for all intents and purposes, you would imagine that it would be premised on national issues. But I think because of the way the world has changed, the country has changed over the last few years, even you know, even COVID, I think we need to think about that as well. Um, how people shift their thought processes where local issues do become more important, which also brings me to um, what then would be the, the campaign premises of the next year's state elections. There yeah. are six states yeah. going in there. And I also know that PH, for example, would really want to defend its ground in Selangor 
uh, Penang and Negeri Sembilan and whether or not it has you know emerged with its full firepower this mm. election maybe mm. they want to save energy so uh, also pass right because they are going into election next year Kelantan, Trengganu and Kedah um, so whether that changes some of the campaign tactics as well very interesting because whether kinship and community will be the driving decision point for this coming G15. On The Breakfast Grill, I'm in conversation with Dr. Trisha Yeo, CEO of IDS, and Professor Datuk Dr. Shamsul Amri Baharudin, Director of Institute of Ethnic Studies. Up next, focusing on substance over style as we unpack their respective coalition manifestos. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Welcome back on today's Breakfast Grill. We have with us Dr. Trisha Yeo, CEO of IDS, and Professor Datuk Dr. Shamsul Amri Baharudin, Director of Institute of Ethnic Studies, as we reflect on how the past 14 days of campaigning have been so far. You know, Prof, let's now shift yeah. away from style over substance and uh, unpack the manifestos. You know, all three coalition parties have released their manifestos. Is there much to separate between all three parties? Well, I think it's a bit like uh, the first half and the second half, you know. The first half, they all look the same for me. But the moment you go to the second half, then you see Felda appearing, which doesn't appear in PA, for example. So it's quite interesting where they know where uh, they, they have already located where the focus is, you know. And they're not going to talk about Felda among people in Jalan Pantai, you know. So so why do they have to include that? So I can see there is uh, P, uh, PN and PH, uh, PN and BN knowing, assuming they have a lot of support uh, from the rural Malays. You know, so they are focusing in some ways in the manifestos of this, like free education and so on and so forth. So I think PN, uh, PH is a lot more uh, wide ranging and broad, you know, the way mm. they offer. This but is what I see. But yeah. I guess the question is, you know, the devil is in the detail, as you say, right, part two, right, Prof? In your view, right, is this, when you look at the manifestos, is it more a defensive posture to energize their base or are they really designing it to kind of reach out and target new voters, right? When you see how they write and construct the manifestos, is it to energize their core? Yeah. Well, you must understand this manifesto, nobody reads all of them, okay? <laughs> Except me and you and Richard probably. <laughs> and the more important part is that how do you condition the working riot is going to contest about the manifesto? So they can choose. Say, if someone is... There are 54, 50 odd seats in Felda. You know, we know that. So that Felda part of the manifesto will become very important to that group of people who are campaigning. So the cost of living, everybody wants more money, everybody unhappy. That, I think, uh, common sense, you know? Yeah. But I think there are specific areas about education. Education has been a bane for the PN, BN, or whatever. Even PH, you know, Masli has got his uh, uh, his uh, uh, his uh, his situation became very difficult with Dr. Masli. So I think um, while uh, there was a promise of um, I'll pay uh, your loan will be scrapped, you know. Remember, in, in, in 2014, you know, all these promises in the manifesto, but I don't think there's such content in the manifesto promising something really, really... yeah, I get, uh, impossible to achieve from my point of view. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think the problem is I think the manifesto is a statement of intention. The question really is execution and implementation. Trisha, when you think about the manifestos and the promises make and couple it with the need to drive execution, 
Do yeah. we have any sense about the teams, respective teams that are going to be committed to drive this manifesto and delivery? Sure. Um, so, but if I may kind of like uh, answer the earlier question a little bit about the manifestos and my thoughts on that. Um, what I found was that this time the PH manifesto was very different from the previous one. I think mm-hmm. it was because they perhaps learned their lesson in uh, providing too many promises. It was a very long one in 2018. This time it's shorter, more trim, um, more issues-based, so kind of broad Base statements about the direction and the vision that they want to take for each issue. Whereas if you look at the BN and PN ones, they are really lists of very multiple offerings, um, read as if they were sort of a budget statement or a budget document rather than a manifesto itself. Um, But I think, yes, it is true that it is also there for the MPs, I mean, the the candidates to be able to pick and choose what it is they would like to mention and talk about. Uh, Yeah, depending on the constituents and where they're contesting, right? Um, So that uh, that said, I think your question about the economic teams that each coalition has to execute them. I mean, let's face it, it's really execution that is the primary problem in Malaysia, We have said this in so many forums and interviews already that Malaysia actually comes up with very brilliant policy documents. It's about the execution, implementation, the coordination between different ministries that are executing a certain, you know, one policy. And coordination actually was not really mentioned in any of the manifestos. Um, So I think this is something that they could have improved upon. So which of the coalitions has the right teams to, to execute it? Uh, I mean, if you look at the leaders of all three coalitions, they have all now had the ad- the advantage, the privilege of having served in government at least one term. So you can't accuse any of the coalitions of not having experience any longer. Um, of course, in BN, you have the caretaker minister of finance. Um, in PN, you have the caretaker minister of international trade yeah. and industry. Uh, and PH, you know, you'll have a slew of other former ministers as and well. And PM candidate being a former finance minister. Exactly, yes. Uh, so I think it's really very well distributed this time um, as to if you're looking at, you know, numbers, number of years of experience. PH as well has experience governing in three state governments, two of which were, you know, for over 10 years. So... It's a, it's a pretty well-matched uh, race if you're talking about the economic teams that would have the, the right wherewithal to execute the policies that they're trying to put forward. So team with competency, the question now is team with courage. Because the big central issue here we have is, and we've had this conversation so many times on Breakfast Grill, right? With, uh, with Shaoning, always asking, who is the adult in the room? Who is going to make the hard decisions? Who is going to balance the short versus long term, right? That's always a central point here. They may have the competency, but they may not have the courage. Okay, so this is something that I was looking to see. And none of the manifestos explicitly mention consolid- fiscal consolidation or a fiscal consolidation maybe, like, you know, structural changes and so on, PH. Yeah mentioned a little bit of that, but none of them actually address the issue of whether we are going to restore the big ticket item in the room, which is GST or value-added tax. Uh, We know that when that GST was rolled back, it actually cost the government quite a significant number of money. Um, And if moving forward with all the stimulus packages that have been rolled out over the last few years, who knows what kind of crisis will come up next year. We're also potentially facing a global economic recession. Where does Malaysia stand in this? I think all research houses will be really keen to see which coalition is most likely to be able to uh, shore up confidence 
happens mm. as far as the fiscal um, public debt issues are concerned. Uh, before the dissolution of parliament, government was supposed to table a Fiscal Responsibility Act in Parliament. That didn't happen. I really look forward to seeing that happen, no matter which coalition comes in. But I have to say that of the three coalitions, uh, my guess about which one would be the most confident or courageous to bring back the GST would probably be a BNPN sort of government, yeah. just because of PH's um, legacy issues from 2018. And I guess, Prof, the biggest issue yeah. here is that is courage a liability when it comes to campaigning? That, you know, actually everybody has that deep-seated courage that they know they have to do these things eventually. It's just that now when you do this campaigning, it's all populism, it's all about being likeable and just doling out all the goodies, right? But will everyone actually be committed to make all these courageous decisions, you think? Well, I think um, uh, I found this in the answer, or rather the question uh, raised by one of the voters in one of these trauma. So he said uh, the, uh, the candidate asked, asked the particular participant which party you would vote. So his answer was quite funny. He said, I have calculated what I could get from each party. <laughs> the one that I've got so much from is PN. But I also got some part from PH. So now I have to decide what would my children get from these uh, mm. uh, parties. So uh, the decision is not about Mr. X who is going to be the, the the chalun or the winning chalun. It's about what the government policies generally, which is about manifesto we are talking about. So he, he, he cleverly puts it in a way that uh, what can I benefit from it all? Yeah. You know? And I guess the biggest issue now for implementation, is coalition politics going to make implementation very hard? Okay, so this is the other thing. So we're talking about now, you know, say we, we haven't really talked about the elections and forecasts and so on. I mean, yeah. the results. But I think there is a consistent analysis now that no single coalition is going to win a single majority, a simple majority outright. So they have to negotiate and form coalitions of their own. What makes then of the promises that are laid out in the manifesto um, if it is a combination of one or two or three, uh, will they come up with a new set of promises, at least a 100-day commitment that they're going to adhere to? Um, how then do voters actually place pressure and set expectations about what they have set out to achieve? What can we measure them against? Yeah. And we're going to discuss what to expect on election night after this special extended breakfast grill because we have with us now Dr. Trisha Yeo, CEO of Ideas and Professor Dr. Dr. Shamsul Amri Baharuddin, Director of Institute of Ethnic Studies. After the news bulletin, we extend the conversation further and get a sense of what to expect on election night. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Welcome back. On this special extended Breakfast Grill, we have with us Dr. Trisha Yeo, CEO of IDS, and Professor Dato Dr. Shamsul Amri Baharudin, Director of Institute of Ethnic Studies as Malaysia, exercises their democratic right to elect our leaders, as we are less than 24 hours for GE15 to select our next leaders. You know, Prof, I want to bring you into the conversation here. On the night of election, will we see a government formed? Well, I think... Um I want to see it like the way I used to see this for the last 10 years, or rather 10 elections. There are three important zones that we have to remember, because this zone will indicate what kind of, uh, who has domination over uh, the seats, you know, the likelihood. Like, I would call the the West Corridor, huh? <clears throat> from Penang, Perak, Selangor, Negeri Sembilan, Johor. 
these are I consider as a mostly a pH-dominated uh, uh, area, whether they are urban or semi-urban, all right? Because the semi-urban, I think they will win in the sense of uh, they have this fixed vote of Chinese and Indian vote will vote anyone who is in the uh, who is representing pH there. Mm. So it doesn't matter who, whether Malayu, China, India, they will vote because I think they were together with pH in this context. Yeah. But when you come to Perlis, Kedah, Kelantan, Terengganu, and Pahang, it's another Story what I call rice, another rice field. You know, this is all <laughs> peasants before. You know, yeah. and that's why Pas is so flourishing there because the pondogs and everything are all in the rice field, even until today. So even though they have the Muda project, the rice field is still a, a, a past dominant, you know. Mm. So I think that they, so that so how many seats there? So when I started to calculate the seats, then that's why as Trisha says, uh, because of this uh, unsureness, uh, there will be whoever who pass, I would say whoever who pass eighty <laughs> will mm. make the government from my point of view. Yeah. So then, Trisha, do you think East Malaysia will be the kingmaker? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, I think that's pretty consistent across the board. Whoever GPS or AND or GRS in Sabah decide to work with and cooperate with, um, that party will be most likely the winning party. And if you look at the number of seats that Sabah and Sarawak contribute, right? Uh, Sarawak contributes 31, Sabah contributes 25. And uh, this is why I think it's most interesting to look at these five states because Sarawak, Johor, Sabah, Perak and Selangor um, are all the states that contribute more than 20 parliamentary seats. So 20 and above. So Sabah and Sarawak definitely um, will be the kingmakers uh, of the day. So even if I think, you know, it's really interesting to see these various predictions coming out over the last few days and all of them seem to consistently put PH at the coalition that has the largest number of seats. But having said that, it's still, you know, below 100. Yeah. That's not a simple majority. And even if they achieve anywhere between 80 to 90 seats, that still does not secure them, um, the government of the day, because, and we have to think about this, because this is the issue that came up during the Sheraton move, Uh, you know, all throughout February and March 2020, remember that who decides which is the prime minister. So it's the prime ministerial candidate that actually determines which coalition will be the winning one. So then, Prof, is this going to be an anyone but PH coalition then? Well, I think uh, the permutation of the coalition uh, will come up as a surprise to many people. I believe that uh, uh, BN is always ready to uh, maybe for PH, not for PN, you know, in, in a way, because the negotiation is going on. You must know that mm. negotiation is going on. Even the Sabah and Sarawak, you know, they have 66 seats out of the 220. Yeah. It's more than uh, a quarter. Uh, yeah. So I think what we are looking at is negotiation between the, uh, the, between the P, uh, PN, PH, and, and Barisan, BN with. Sarawak and Sabah that will decide where we will be going. 
And that's why I find very interesting you point to the fact that in the end, right, it's going to be about who's going to be the prime minister and that the decision is the gravitation, gravitational pull towards the prime minister. We talked early on about the parliamentary candidate, about the party, about, about the prime minister. Eventually, it is about the prime minister. Which PM candidate is likely able to unify the country? Which PM candidate is likely to unify all the parliamentary candidates there? Yeah, because don't forget, um, I mean, and, and I hope that the among the various things that are being negotiated by the various coalitions in the formation of a government is not just about who the prime minister candidate is, but hopefully it's also about policy. I mean, that's uh, always the ideal, right, that we would like to strive towards. But I mean, let's face it, the reality is about who's going to be the PM. And this was the problem, again, if you, if you hearken back to the 2020 crisis, right, how long it took for each of the coalitions to come to an agreement. Um, and I think going back to your question about what to expect on the election day itself, I don't expect that the night will see us any results because negotiations take time and because we are just shuffling that number, that many more voters into the polling stations, yeah. uh, we are possibly seeing late results. I am looking at perhaps um, several days to a week because there's a huge time lag between number one, the election results coming out, um, and the eventual appointment by the Agong of the Prime Minister. Between these two events, many things can happen, many things need to happen yep. uh, before that final line, finishing line takes place. And that's why, Prof, you know, just a slight joke, you know, yep. Trisha and I were talking by the side that we're going to go to sleep very early after we have our public, <laughs> after we're on air on, on Sunday, Saturday evening. But I want to close, you know, because in the end, right, the whole point of this election is about service to people, about action and implementation. When this next government is in place, what are the three things that the new administration must tackle immediately? And I would like to pose this question to both of you. Prof, over to you. Well, first is economy. That's definitely uh, the most important, whether they want to introduce GST as a right now, because of the economy, we will see. Yeah. And number two, of course, is uh, um, what I call a general issue that we always deal with in this country. We are beset by this. It's about corruption. So I think this is the second issue that everyone will be looking at and hoping the government will uh, will take care of. And finally, it's about, uh, at, at, at the moment, COVID is still around. Mm. So while they want to talk about economy, they want to talk about uh, corruption, the one that will corrupt our health is the one that we're mm. looking at. So I economy, corruption, will... health, the top three priorities for you. Yep. Trisha? Yeah, uh, number one, economy. Uh, we know that next year will be a really tough year. I mean, among the reasons of calling an early election, I think, was the fear that Malaysia, together with the rest of the region and the world, would be facing this sort of potential recession and whether or not we have the uh, necessary um, you know, institutions to be able to withstand those shocks. So number one, the economy. Um, and of course, coupled with the economy would be tackling the poor, the growing poor categories. And inequality. Num and inequality. Number two, governance. So that also covers corruption. But more than just corruption, I think we really need to be able to put forward laws and policies and regulations, institutional reforms that will set the country right. So mm. setting those rules so that all parties can play equally. And number three, I think really the public sector. Uh, there's not enough attention being paid to the public sector performance-wise, quality, the number of civil servants. Um, what are we doing to ensure that 
the money is being spent. And also, mind you, most of the money in the budget is spent on emoluments, right? So public sector reforms, it's a really tricky thing to tackle, but I think any government coming in really needs to look at that. Prof, Trisha, thank you so much. I think the last points you raise reflect how important it is for all of us to go out there and vote for this G15. That's all the time we have for today on The Breakfast Grill. Dr. Trisha, your CEO of Ideas and Professor Datuk Dr. Shamsul Amri Baharudin, Director of Institute of Ethnic Studies, as we call on all Malaysians to go out and vote for G15. I'm Philip C, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.